In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 54, through the beginning of chapter 8. Confronted with Stephen's impassioned defense, the members of the Sanhedrin have responded with rage. And as we'll see today, the first martyrdom in the church's history tragically unfolds. Amid this profound turmoil, Stephen looks to the heavens and receives a vision of divine reassurance even as earthly events take a brutal turn. Then Saul, who would become St. Paul, we find out is present, giving approval to Stephen's execution. This event sets the stage for widespread persecution that will scatter the believers, but inadvertently further the spread of the gospel. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Wednesday, July 26th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is made possible by listeners like you who continue to support the ministry of KFUO Radio. We're also grateful for a generous gift from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You hear me talk about them on every show, but it's worth it. They do great work. They publish and distribute Bible-based materials that are faithful to the Christian message. And the best part, they give out these resources for free to those who need them. So, if you'd like to learn more about what LHF does and how you can join them in their important ministry work, have a look at their website, lhfmissions.org. There's an S on the end, lhfmissions.org. But without any further ado, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning. It's the Reverend Dr. Matthew Richard. He's the pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Minot, North Dakota. Good morning, Pastor Richard, and welcome back to the show. Hey there. Good morning. Good to hear you, and uh, good to be a part of the show today. Good, Good topic today. Really good text. It really is. We're continuing the narrative that we began yesterday, and yesterday we got to witness once again Stephen's uh, impassioned uh, speech, uh, which then, of course, has (laughs) led to the events of today. Um, He uses the Word of God to convict the people, and, and of course, then the people have a choice to repent in their conviction and and turn to the Lord, or to, well— I guess, act like the way they acted today. So not only is it a good topic, I think it's a it's a good and timely topic for Christians today because, as I said yesterday, we often hear and even think about all of those events in the New Testament where the, the gospel and the law is proclaimed and thousands of people come to Christ, and it can be a little frustrating in today's, in today's uh, milieu. But then we look here and we see, well, gosh— Stephen was also proclaiming the law and gospel of God, and we're going to see where it got him. So not not every event do we see is uh, is fruitful. We have to trust in the Lord. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's it's quite interesting as we consider the Book of Acts, uh, you know, chapter seven and the stoning of Stephen. Uh, kind of considering the whole context. I mean, we we. We, we often see in our public society and in our world a lot of backroom politics and, and uh, jockeying for position and unjust ways of handling uh, uh, power and control in our society. And we all, we all witness that. We, we can kind of feel it in the air. And the same goes here. I mean, if, if, if you look back in Acts chapter uh, 6, you see that uh, 
the uh, individuals, the leaders were uh, instigating and stirring the crowd behind the scene. And in fact, we look at the very early part of Acts, which I think is actually pretty, pretty important to understand when we look at the uh, stoning of Stephen here. When we look back, uh, the early parts of Acts chapter 6, they instigated individuals to do what we call a, a straw man logical fallacy. And somebody may say, well, what's a straw man lo- lo- logical fallacy? It's it's creating a picture of a person that's not true. And so, in other words, um, if I want to get, if I want to get uh, uh, get get at somebody, like let's just say, um, you know, Johnny over off to the side over there, and I don't like Johnny, and everybody likes Johnny. Uh, so the first thing I would have to do is I'd have to uh, create a picture of Johnny that is uh, improper or or uh, scandalous or evil. And so then I can stir people up to start speaking. Uh, against Johnny, which would be breaking, obviously, the Eighth Commandment, giving a false testimony. And then as soon as I kind of fabricate enough of a narrative uh, that Johnny is evil, that he's, um, you know, no good, then I would have the justification to stir other people to uh, come against him. Because now, now we're not coming against just a righteous man. We're coming against what? An evil man. And that's exactly what they did here. They they stirred up the crowd in the earlier parts of Acts uh, chapter 6, and they created a straw man, if you will, a, a version of Stephen that did not really exist. And that would then thus justify the conflict and ultimately the stoning. So then at the very end, when you when you put Stephen to death, you're, you're not stoning a righteous man. You're doing God a favor. You're getting rid of an evil man. Yeah, I think that's a, an important observation. Yesterday, as we were reading the charges that they laid out against Stephen, that's one of the things that came to my mind is that in some ways, from their point of view even— they're not. They're they're definitely creating this straw man, like you're saying, but they're doing it with, I guess, nebulous truths, right? Uh, I mean, some of the things that they were accusing Stephen of, from their perspective, are true. You know, speaking against this holy place. Well, he's not going to speak against their holy place. He's just going to point to the more holy, which is in Christ, or taking away some of the traditions of Moses. Well, I guess when you proclaim Christ who has fulfilled the law, some of those man-made, especially traditions, are falling by the wayside. So they're accusing him, I, I observed, of things that are could be perceived as technically true, but they're framing them in such a way that makes them false witnesses. And the reason why I want to bring that up again is because that's the danger today. They look at Christians— uh, we look at how we're portrayed in the media or portrayed online or portrayed by those who would not agree with our ways, and they take things that are technically our beliefs but then reframe them as things like hate and bigotry and backwardsness, etc. And I think you're right because then if they can dehumanize us, then it makes it really easy to persecute us. But wouldn't you also agree we have to be very careful of doing the same thing to them as I'm talking about the nebulous them, right? Right, right. And I mean, this all comes down to the, again, to the Eighth Commandment. And, and uh, you know, when we think of the Eighth Commandment, which is, you know, thou shalt not bear false testimony against thy neighbor, um, I would say that twofold. Number, number one, on the one side, we want to be able to say things in the kindest fashion. And that even includes against our um, enemies uh, to speak things in the kindest way possible. And at the same time, uh, the Eighth Commandment, I've often seen times in the church and the Christian community where the Eighth Commandment is perceived as basically sweeping it under the rug. Um, That's not the case either. And so we want to call, as they say, a spade a spade. We want our yes to be yes and our no to be no. And we want to be able to call a thing what it is. But 
when we call a thing for what it is, we always do it with the best construction. That means not only speaking kind words about even our enemies, but also making sure to disclose the whole truth. Uh, you can you can you can misconstrue uh, a character of a person uh, by not speaking the full truth. You can you can say only partially. So we we call this a big fancy word. We're, we're reductionistic. We reduce uh, the narrative of a person by maybe withholding uh, the good that they've done. So for instance, back to that illustration of Johnny, uh, Johnny, you know, let's just say Johnny messed up uh, in the community. Um, so then what happens is you would only highlight and emphasize uh, what he has done is evil. But the good things that he's done, you know, we just kind of don't mention that. Uh, it's selective reporting. And and, and unfortunately, we, we do see that uh, um, in, in the media. Oftentimes, you can turn through the different media stations. And I... I I get in trouble by my wife uh, many times. Uh, we haven't had cable for a couple of years, but back when I used to have cable, I do most of our news on the internet and so forth. But back when we used to have cable, I used to turn back and forth between the liberal uh, news station and the conservative one. I'd go back and forth. And what was interesting, they would report on the same story, but then both sides would leave things out uh, in order to make it to an advantage, whether to make that person right. or that story evil or righteous to them. And that is not the way of the Eighth Commandment. It's to speak the whole truth, right? The whole truth, but right. nothing nothing but the truth. So help me God, right? Uh, that kind of um, mindset. Um, and then once we speak the truth, to put the kindest uh, disposition and the kindest uh, construction on it. And I, I, I do have to uh, emphasize what you're saying here, you know, because as good Lutherans, we try to do our best to uh, stand by the Eighth Commandment. And the Eighth Commandment will often come up often used as a club in some circles to uh, prevent people from mentioning the truth, to prevent people from calling out sin. Uh, we have to be careful that we don't exercise the Eighth Commandment in such a way that it excuses, ignores, or as you said earlier, sweeps under the rug sin. Because we have Stephen here, and he's been falsely accused. And I think it would be easy for him to just sort of accuse them, even of true things that they've done, but he doesn't. As we heard yesterday, he goes through the entire, uh, well, I shouldn't say the entire, but a very great summary of God's activity on earth from the time of Abraham to Jesus, and he makes it clear that he is on board with them. He makes it clear that he's not teaching anything new, kind of reminds me a little bit of the, of the Lutheran Reformation. And then he also ends, though, not by accusing him them with his own anger and words, but rather with the words of God. Taking us back just a few verses, 51 says, or rather Stephen says in 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen is not mincing words. Is he not mincing words out of anger against them, or does he desire them to repent? Is this a, you know, how do you see his sort of very direct, I guess we could say, ending with the law uh, sermonette here? Right. I mean, and that's something to be considered. You know, uh, it's been said before that you preach law to the proud and grace to the humble. It's a neat little uh, phrase that I've heard over the years, and and that is true. When somebody is 
is hard at heart, um, you don't give them an ounce of the gospel, uh, for that would be throwing pearls to swine, um, as it's stated in the scripture. And so you preach the law to hard hearts, but yet if a heart is crushed and uh, uh, we think of Psalm 51, if a heart is crushed and uh, broken, uh, contrite, then uh, not an ounce of the law should be proclaimed, but pure, sweet gospel should be proclaimed. And so uh, Stephen is being truly a, a, a prophet, a, a pastor, a preacher who is discerning the crowd and, and giving them what they need, um, and which is going to be the, the word of God, which is the law unto their heart. Now, Here's the problem, though, is when, when we're told what we don't want to hear when we're confronted, uh, that oftentimes leads us to frustration. Uh, I know the times in my life where I've had brothers, uh, brother pastors, or even my, my, my spouse, my wife, or friends who have said, you know, Matt, I need to talk to you. And they sit me down and they say, hey, you know, you need to consider this. Uh, that hurts. <laughs> it hurts. It hurts yeah. to be confronted by one's sin. And it even hurts even more to be humbled. And then it hurts to confess. Uh, it, it, it actually attacks the sinful old Adam's uh, pride. And so our pride loves to be puffed up. Our pride likes to be right. Our pride likes to, likes to be in control and have power. But then to admit that we're wrong, uh, to find the way of humility, uh, which is repentance before God Almighty and our neighbor, uh, that definitely hurts. And, you know, we, we, we see a lot of parallels um, with Stephen's um, stoning here. And we also see the parallels with uh, the Gospels of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and how the religious leaders at that time, how they interacted with Jesus. And uh, a couple couple pithy thoughts. I mean, I think looking at the book of Mark, it's interesting. You can see, um, I read I read a uh, paper a while back, and, and sure enough, and reading the book of Mark, you see this, that the intensity starts where they they start uh, murmuring behind Jesus' back and kind of, you can just see the religious leaders at the time, they're just kind of grumbling behind the scenes. And we've all experienced that where maybe we're not sitting well with, with a group of people and you can, can feel that you're being talked about. You feel the waves, uh, the waves in the water, if you will. And then they started questioning him and they weren't, they weren't kind questions. They were challenging questions. And then <clears throat> those questions elevated to, um, to an attack on his character. You know, Beelzebub, you know, the, to, uh, the attack of his character. And then it went from the attack of the character then to physically arresting him and then beating him and then crucifying him. And so there's an intensity that developed. And that all stems back from uh, this basis of them not wanting to repent, them not wanting to admit that they were wrong, uh, them uh, not going the way of John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. And so instead of repentance, they mounted up attack against Jesus. And the same goes here with uh, Stephen. One of the things as we look at what Stephen's experiencing is he is experiencing, of course, the things that the prophets before him experienced. Uh, he is following in the footsteps of Jesus, as you so eloquently pointed out. Uh, in fact, many of the things that he's saying are very reminiscent of the way Jesus would dealt with people, uh, stiff-necked people, which comes from Exodus, but also uh, we see Jesus accuse people of this same thing, uncircumcised uh, hearts, that is, we get from Deuteronomy. Uh, and then, of course, this idea of which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute uh, directly from Jesus, right, from Matthew and elsewhere. So, so Peter is speaking the truth with confidence but I'm sorry, Peter, <laughs> I'm sure he does too, but Stephen is. And he's doing it, I believe, because of his own false accusations, the straw man that they've made out of him, but also that's his job, right? But speaking of his job, I had a message from one of our listeners. 
uh, people can often send me messages and do on Facebook, by the way. You can, too. Just search me up, Phil Boo, on Facebook. You can send me a message, ask a question, even in the middle of the show. That's fine. But anyway, I got a message from one of them that was a little confused about how Stephen fits in as uh, in terms of his vocation in the church. Uh, and I don't know if how much you want to get into that, but I think it's worth addressing since we have a listener who's a little confused. Obviously, early on here in the book of Acts, things are a little more nebulous, but the apostles have appointed seven men of good repute who are now serving, Hellenist men who are serving their people so that the Hellenists, the Greek uh, Christians, aren't being neglected. Stephen is one of them. Um, What is his role in the church? Would you say it's just this? Would you say it's a deacon? When he proclaims this word, is he preaching or is he... Uh, just proclaiming as all Christians must do when they're called to account. How do you explain how Stephen fits in? Well, I, th- I think you, you said that at the very end. I think, you know, first and foremost, we want to understand that uh, every Christian, regardless of the Christian is a pastor or a layman, uh, young or old, uh, we are bound to confess truth because we're captive to truth. And so uh, when it comes to us as Christians, our, our mouth confesses, uh, this this saving faith that has been created in us by by the means of the word itself, and so um, whether you're in the pulpit or whether you are a mom uh, saying your prayers with a little child at bed, or whether you are in the workforce, uh, when given an opportunity to confess, uh, we confess. And so I would say there's a difference between arguing and uh, confessing. Now, there's a place, don't get me wrong, there's a place for arguing and debate of the faith. And that's what we would call that fancy word apologetics, which is defending the faith. And that, that can happen in more rigorous debate settings. Um, and I would even say in those settings, you've got to be careful that you don't demonize one another, that you are uh, confessing with rigor and respect with one another. But the confess, confessing of the faith is just confessing uh, what we know to be true. Uh, what we know to be true about uh, sin, what we know to be true about righteousness, uh, Jesus, what, what we know to be true about e- things of eternal nature, of the uh, second coming of Christ, and so forth. And so uh, whether you are a pastor in the pulpit, or you're a mother at the bedside of your child, or in the workforce, uh, we all confess. And uh, that is the great privilege. And and it's something to think about that with confessing, you know, it, oftentimes I run into prisoners who say, well, I don't really know what to say. And I said, well, you just confess what you know to be true, that that I'm a sinner uh, by the means of, of understanding of who I am as a sinner by the law, realizing that I don't do what I should, and that Jesus is good to me. He's forgiven me of all my sins, that I'm baptized into him. And uh, I've heard it said before, too, when it comes to evangelism, that evangelism is just telling another person where the free warm bread is, inviting them to come in here. Um, and so First and foremost, we want to understand that, um, that that Stephen is confessing as a Christian. Now, you get into these other uh, sections where you have different offices and so forth. Um, now, obviously, the, we look at the, the office of deacon and the office of pastor. Uh, to a certain extent, we would understand that the office of deacon was uh, tied to um, helping with with the uh, the table duties and so forth, um, so that the, the apostles were free to be able to preach and proclaim the word of God. But at the same time, too, we also have this history of deacons proclaiming the word as well. Um, so I would say that definitely he's engaging uh, these uh, religious leaders in the office of a leader of the church, no doubt about it. Um, but regardless if he's a leader or not, uh, when you are driven uh, under persecution or driven by uh, questions, uh, the Christian has one solution, and that's to confess not his own thoughts, 
his own opinions, but to confess that which he is captive to, which is the Word of God. Right, to con- <clears throat> to confess, right? Same say. We're, we're just repeating what we have been uh, given faith in from the Scriptures. Well, I guess we should get to the, uh, <laughs> the, the point of today. We haven't even got into our text because after he says these things, after he accuses them of being stiff-necked and having uncircumcised hearts and reminding them of their they and their ancestors' persecution of the prophets, this is how they respond, starting with verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at them. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. I'm going to pause there at the end of verse 57. So Stephen is telling him these things. He gets to the point where he lets the hammer drop, uh, the other shoe drops, and then they are enraged by what they heard. You talked about this a little bit earlier, but I can piggyback your sentiments. Whenever I'm having to be confronted by the law, whether it's privately as I'm reading the scriptures or whether, as you said, people have had to say, listen, we're going to come to you. You've made a mistake. You've sinned against us or whatever. Um, I don't think I've ever immediately reacted with, oh, thank you so much for correcting me, and I should I should change my ways. It often takes at the very least a few minutes, sometimes a few days, to really process the fact that, yeah, I, I, I did sin against these people or I did do something wrong. Um, these people react in the very same way that I think most people do when they're confronted with their sins. They get upset. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm reminded of a, of a conversation in a book I read many, many years ago. Um, have, have several good friends that have been missionaries over the years, and and one one particular friend, uh, missionary over in Africa, in the country of Chad. And uh, basically ministering and proclaiming the gospel as a missionary to Muslim individuals, and and he recommended this book, um, and it was more of a, a what we call missiology book, a book on missions and so forth. And and uh, there's a little quote, in it, and actually uh, I pulled it up here as as you were sharing, and and this book is talking about when you engage people with different what we would say worldviews, and, and a worldview is a big fancy word just simply saying how you view life, how you view the world. And so if you view the world through a different ideology, uh, let's just say, uh, then you're going to have, well, just real simply think of it this way. When you watch the State of the Union, <laughs> not trying to bring up politics, but this is hilarious. When you watch the State of the Union address, the president gets up and says something. You watch the uh, the, the whole uh, State of the Union assembly of all the uh, politicians. You'll have half the room stand up and applaud and cheer, and the other half will sit there with a skull on their face with their arms crossed. And you say, well, what gives? Well, you have two different worldviews at work. And so that which is being stated is going to be celebrated by some and then opposed by others. So back to this point, though, uh, when it comes to missions, uh, this quote that what uh, that stuck out for me was basically staying, saying something to this effect. He said, to, to, to challenge a worldview is to challenge a person's very foundation of life. 
and people resist such challenges with deep emotional reactions. And then the author goes on to say, he said, there are few human fears greater than a loss of sense of order and meaning. People are willing to die for their beliefs if these beliefs make their death meaningful. I mean, that's, that's a powerful quote. In other words, mm-hmm. we, we, we can invest we can invest ourselves in a certain way of viewing life and a certain way of viewing um, our, our spirituality per se. And what happens when we're challenged, uh, if we're challenged in a way that shows that we're incorrect, then we would have to not only confess that we are wrong, but then to admit, I've been seeing it wrong for all these years. And that has a sense of dislodging us from that which gives us comfort. And in this case, uh, they're being challenged by Stephen about the Christ and that everything that you view about the one that you've crucified, uh, you were wrong. And as a result of not repenting, as a result of not having a tender heart of bringing to humility and confession of sin, they doubled down. And this is would be the searing of the heart, where the heart and the conscience is seared and becomes hard. And as a result of that, in the defense of their own worldview, uh, they lashed out. And we see this all the time. You even see this with with children, right? When we confront one of our children, you know, you did wrong. And they can either break one of two ways. They can they can burst into tears and say, I'm sorry, mom and dad, or they can get enraged and they can they can lie. I didn't do it. Or they can, you know, all these tactics to defend their actions and defend their their uh, self-justification per se. And we see this everywhere. And it's right here. We see it at its full display and it's actually quite quite uh, tragic to see how much rage came forth uh, because there's an unwillingness to, to simply repent. Well, in defense of the, you know, these Jews who are so upset, the Sanhedrin folks who are uh, angry at what they've heard uh, Stephen be accused of and what they believe that he's been doing. I I think it's worth us understanding how it might feel from their perspective. I mean, it would be as though, someone stepped into our church in the middle of service and started telling everyone that Jesus wasn't the Christ or that he had already returned and that he was some guy living in, you know, Kansas City or something. The point is somebody coming in and causing up a stir in the middle of, say, our congregation or amongst our people, we would react, uh, hopefully not exactly like this, but, but we would react um, negatively, and that is certainly about worldviews, as you were talking. Uh, they, There is some, I guess, I don't want to say excuse, but some explanation to their behavior, because as you pointed out, we do that all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think to have, you know, a bit of understanding and compassion for them in that I think definitely is helpful. Uh, we see the same thing too, right, with with Jesus in, in, I believe, the Gospel of John. He gets up and he speaks <laughs> He speaks in the pulpit and he, you know, basically proclaims to them and then they want to take him outside and throw him off of a cliff. And uh, I remember, I remember a a professor once he was saying that uh, as a pastor, your job is to communicate the text in a fashion and in a way that the text, uh, the scriptures, the proclamation of the word does to your hearers what it would do to the uh, original hearers. Uh, in the context, so if 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 a person is brought to repentance in the scriptures, in the original story of the the Holy Scripture, then the person in the pew should be brought to repentance. If they're brought to hope and joy, that that same uh, result should be uh, uh, done in the church as you proclaim the very same word. And I remember a person saying, "Well, what about that passage where Jesus almost got stoned?" And then the, the <laughs> professor said, "Well, uh, good luck with that one." <laughs> 
<laughs> so anyway, right. I, you know, I always say, you know, if, if, if here at St. Paul's, if I get done preaching and they're not taking me out uh, to throw me not off of a cliff, but we, we live on a busy street called Burdick Expressway, if they're not taking me outside to toss me into the middle of Burdick Expressway, I, I, I've probably done a good, uh, probably, probably okay. But then I have to question, did I preach the text correct? <laughs> <laughs> right. That's right. So, so but no, I, I I think the point remains. I mean, we, we see this um numerous times. I mean, with, with Jeremiah being thrown in the cistern, uh we we look at uh over and over and over, uh we see the, this resistance of of the holy truth. And and you know, to a certain extent we can we can always, you know, like what you're pointing out, point that out in the they and the them. But we have to be aware of that because of our sinful nature, that we Christians have the sinful nature that doesn't believe the gospel, doesn't want to hear the gospel, that is very self-centered, very narcissistic, as if you can say that word, narcissistic, very inward focused. Uh, we too uh, should come to expect when we hear the word of God that we will be offended as well because we have our own idols, our own little projects that we build up. Um, you know, I worship the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I so often. And uh, so every time that uh, Pastor Matt Richard encounters the word, there needs to be not Matt Richard stoning the word, but I need to be stoned. I need to be put down my sinful nature in repentance and faith and then raised anew in Christ, uh, knowing that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Well, that's some good thoughts for us to consider as we take just a few moments and go to break. But folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Richard and I will pick it back up where we left off. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me this morning is the Reverend Dr. Matthew Richard. He's the pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Minot, North Dakota. Thy Strong Word is available to all of our amazing listeners in the St. Louis area on AM850. But if you're not in St. Louis, and I know a lot of the listeners aren't, you know, you can catch up as a podcast. You can share the program with those who aren't in the St. Louis area by pointing them to the podcast, showing them how to do it, or even better, have them or you yourself download the KFUO radio app available for iOS and Android. And you can be in the word on your own time. You can listen live to the show or catch up at your own convenience at KFUO.org forward slash life strong word. And if you want to chat with me or share some thoughts or you have any questions, I'm all ears. You can reach me by dropping an email to pastorboo at gmail.com 
or by connecting with me on Facebook. Just search for Phil Boo, and uh, you can send me a friend request or just send me a message. I'll get it. All right. Well, before now, let's get back into the text. And uh, before we left, you know, we we're talking about Stephen. He is... Um, he is enraging the people with the truth of God, something that I'm afraid we know all too well, even in these last days. Um, but the image of their reaction, as depicted by uh, who we have here, Luke, right? It is uh, tremendous because it's, I want to talk about him looking into heaven. But even before that, I almost want to kind of jump to he's he's seeing this comforting vision they're enraged. They're grinding their teeth at him, he says. And then 57, but they cried out with a loud voice, stopping their ears and rushed together at him. If I'm not mistaken, this is an image of these grown men shouting and hollering and putting their fingers in their ears and running at this man, Stephen, because they don't like what he has to say. Am I getting that right, Pastor? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you look at the language, they, they stopped their ears. And so, uh, you know, this, I can't help when I, when I read this, I often think about, you know, how Jesus says, you who have ears, let them hear. And, uh, you know, the thing is with, with being a Christian, you know, if I've, I've said this oftentimes, let's say it this way. I've said this oftentimes with St. Paul's that if we were to have a, a mascot as, as a Christian church, uh, we should have a big ear, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and because that's the nature of of the church, we are uh, we are receivers of, of of God's holy word. We we listen, we hear, um, and so the ear is a receptive organ of our body. Uh, you know, oftentimes we say, "Well, we're, we're the hands and feet of Jesus," and I kind I, I guess I guess I, I get the sentiment of that. How we're the hands and feet and so forth to to show acts of mercy to the world. But I would say more importantly, um, we Christians are an ear to hear and uh, to receive. Uh, the word of God. And so you kind of have that in the back of your mind. And then you see here that they're stopping their ears. Uh, quite literally, they're, they're, they're holding their ears together with their hands, um, in a sense, uh, to block out that proclamation. And so you definitely see not only in a hard heart, but you hear uh, that you see here uh, closed ears as well. And in a sense, too, I'm also, as I'm, I think about this text as well, uh, it kind of reminds me of the idea of uh, hot coals, if you will. You know, obviously, what happens when you when it's, it's a hot coal upon an enemy's head, and so uh, the very fact that they are uh, persecuting Stephen here, and he proclaims the acceptance of Jesus Christ in this special revelation uh, given to him uh, that he is accepted before God Almighty. Um, it's 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 hot coals or or salt on an open wound. It's it's um, you know, returning, uh, you know, turning the other cheek in a sense uh, where, where there's kindness. Well, and even, even that, if you fast forward to the end of this chapter where he says, you know, Lord, uh, you know, do not hold this against them. And, and this is the same thing we hear of Christ on the, on the uh, cross, the, you know, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. So we definitely see the, the, the motivation um, and the disposition of Stephen here uh, in the midst of this persecution, it's one not of animosity and destruction, but of re, you know of, of a desire of repentance for them, um, but they would have none of it, and so they clogged their ears and they rushed to destroy. They indeed rushed to destroy. Let's read three more verses to get us to the end of the chapter. Here it goes. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, and as they were stoning him, he called out. 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So, yes, definitely some parallels to Jesus. Um, actually, there have been throughout his speech parallels to Jesus, but here he's acting in the way of his Lord. He's considering it a uh, an honor to die for his Lord, although certainly no one wants to die. Death is always bad, but he understands why. You know, he's not he's not being persecuted because of his own sinfulness. He's being persecuted for the name of Christ, and and this is something that was a real. Um, a physical persecution was a real danger to these early church disciples. And uh, I think sometimes, you know, we get upset with some of the persecutions, and they are that, that we incur into modern society. But the world has always been against Christ and his message. And we see here our first church, our church's first martyr. We see just a perfect example of that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, I've heard it said before um, that when it comes to the Christian faith, that the Christian faith oftentimes functions best when it's in the midst of uh, suffering. The church suffers best in the midst of suffering. In fact, I mean, you look at the book of Acts, every time that there's persecution, the church spreads and grows. And uh, uh, we don't like suffering, though. We want to operate in prosperity, uh, but oftentimes the church is in the midst of suffering, and uh, that is not something that... uh, it impedes the church, but it has a way of refining the church uh, to keep the main thing the main thing. And so you look at all the disciples, and I, I just I find it so humbling when I when I look at all the disciples. You know, you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and uh, Paul, and so forth. I mean, I believe you know Paul was crucified upside down. Uh, you know, when when um, uh, Peter's wife Concordia, when she was being led away. Uh, to to her death, uh, she she shouted out. If I can recall from church history, she said, "Remember the Lord, Peter. Remember the Lord." And then we hear of all the disciples, the horrific deaths that they have incurred. Now, we we hear that suffering, and we can be very very um, admiring of that. But if we rewind the clock and we remember, you know, back in the the early thirties, <clears throat> when when Jesus was uh, arrested and crucified, they they all they all split and ran. You know, so you have these disciples who are absolutely petrified in fear. You look at that brave Peter, you know, before a servant girl denying Jesus, you know, denying Jesus three times there in that courtyard. And then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, you see uh, Peter <clears throat> Peter being crucified upside down. What on earth happened? Well, what happened was the resurrected Lord. And it's only the strength and the, the proclamation of that good gift of the resurrection of Jesus that that is that is able to bring about such actions. And and you look here, too, as Stephen, right? He's given this special a special revelation of Jesus at the right hand, and that that gives him comfort, and so uh, gives him comfort in the midst of his death uh, to proclaim um, grace and 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 plead for forgiveness of those who are attacking him. And apart from that, I mean, I, I you know, apart from that, to 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 pronounce a, a hope of a blessing upon those who are killing you, uh, it's just I it, I can't fathom that even happening unless it is by the sake of the gospel itself. Um, understanding that. Um, you know, that we are secure in the Lord uh, for our future. Well, and this this vision that he gets, because we didn't really cover that as much as we should have back in 55, full of the Spirit, he gazed into heaven, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he just doesn't see this. We say, okay, well, this is for Stephen's comfort. He's facing death. Uh, you know, God is gifting him with this vision so he can be confident that he is in the right, et cetera, et cetera, uh, except he decides to say something. He doesn't just look. 
he says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And so interestingly enough is, you know, we, we look at this fact that he's being stoned, but I think we've forgotten, wasn't he on trial? <laughs> like, like, how did we get from them saying, them enduring, I should say, this whole speech from him as he's defending himself to now they're plugging up their ears and rushing at him and they're going to stone him to death. And the pivot point, of course, is when he said he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's the blasphemy that kind of, you know, halted the trial, immediate execution. Uh, am I reading that right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely, I mean, it definitely intensifies. I mean, it absolutely intensifies. And so, yeah, you know, you would think, okay, back in verse 51, which we hit earlier, uh, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Um, if I was in their shoes, that would that would tick me off. Right, that's <laughs> you know, that, the part that, where they should have gotten all mad. Yeah, yeah. But I think I think it comes down to the fact that that there's a sense where, you know, for a person to have uh, assurance and confidence in Christ in the midst of one's death, in the midst of persecution. In other words, he's not, you know, Stephen's not taking it back. You know, you, okay, you would think, okay, you know, pick up a stone and stone somebody. It's like, I'm going to lift up a stone or lift up whatever it is to persecute. You would expect the person to say, you know, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, yeah, uh, at this point, I just, I just want to take a step back and I want to, you know, de-escalate it and, and I'm going to take it back. I, you know, I'll recant, right? I mean, this even go back to the 1500s, right? With, with Luther, Martin Luther, you know, take it back, Luther, you know, say you didn't mean it. <laughs> You know, and if you say you didn't mean it, then then it'll deflate and 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 bring the escalation of conflict. It'll bring it down. Uh, but right here, um, not only did he call him stiff-necked, but he proclaimed Jesus, and he had complete uh, assurance in the midst of that. And not only that, but then he also says, "What well, he's a Lord, do not hold this sin against them." And he, and 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 he's pleading for grace and mercy upon them in the midst of their. Uh, despicable uh, crimes against him, against uh, ultimately the fifth commandment. Uh, so not only uh, have they broken the eighth commandment, but they're breaking the fifth commandment and taking his life. And he pleads for grace and mercy, and it just enrages them. And so this is the nature um, of what the word of God, uh, I've heard it said before, um, trying to think here, but CFW Walther, our first president of the Missouri Senate, he said, when you preach the word, uh, be ready that uh, some will fall into two camps. Uh, some will appreciate it and others will be enraged. And in fact, Martin Luther even talks about this, goes all the way back. We see this pattern all the way back to the very, very first chapters of the Bible with Cain and Abel. And so Martin Luther says that there's two churches. There's the church of Abel, which lives by faith, and the church of Cain uh, that lives by works and rages and will always persecute uh, the Church of Abel. And so the Church of Cain will always persecute the Church of Abel. In fact, uh, I've heard it said before too as well that if you want to follow the uh, the true uh, faithful Church of God uh, throughout the generations, all you have to do is follow the trail of blood. And where you will find the trail of blood or the martyr's blood is typically where you will find the Church of Abel under persecution from the Church of Cain. The martyr's blood, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning, of course, he calls out and asks for their forgiveness. But the witnesses being, I assume, the false witnesses, and laying down their garments. It took me a while to kind of understand what this means. And if I'm correct, I believe 
this is just signifying they're basically taking off their coats so they can be unencumbered to throw rocks. <laughs> and they lay down their garments at the feet of Saul. Is there something deeper to them laying down their garments than that or what? Yeah, I, I think I think you're spot on. It's it's basically well, we could translate that into our modern day age of how we say it, rolling up one's sleeves, right? Right. So, right. You know, it it uh, when you when you do something with uh, with uh, intensity of work, um, we think back to to uh, old times where they would gird their loins. You've heard that before, and it's like, well, what on earth is that? Well, it's basically uh, lifting up their 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 garment, lifting it up high on their on their thighs and tying it so that one could what work the land, you know, so the, the, the longer garments not getting full of mud and dirt and so forth, or if they're going to go battle and fight, you roll up your, your, you gird your loins, you roll up your gown. Uh, the same thing is with, with uh, our day and age, we always use that phrase rolling up one sleeve. And so, um, you know, for instance, if uh, you see a guy is going to do some work and maybe he has a, a, a shirt and tie on and a suit, he does three things. Uh, he takes off his jacket you know, obviously, and then his outer jacket, he rolls up his sleeve and then he takes his tie and he tucks his tie into his shirt so the tie doesn't get mud on it. It's the same thing here, uh, taking off the garments um, to basically throw rocks. Yeah. And of course, we're introduced to Saul for the first time in the book of Acts. So Saul is there. In fact, uh, the next chapter begins, and Saul approved of his execution. So Saul, who we know will become St. Paul, uh, fascinating how this first martyr of the church is connected to, well, I guess the most prolific author of the scriptures, right? St. Paul. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, it's very interesting the, what you said there, that we're first introduced to him. So, I mean, we, we you know, we as Christians, we know know these characters and we've, we've heard of them before and so forth. You know, we've heard of Saul and, you know, uh, you know his name changed to, uh, or is not necessarily changed, but his, his emphasis of his name uh, being Saul and Paul. And uh, we, we think of Peter and uh, James and all these individual characters. But imagine, if you will, reading the book of Acts for the very first time and you're reading it, all of a sudden you get to this point. Now this, up to this point in the book of Acts, I mean, this is, Pretty intense. I mean, the speaking in tongues that 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 is pretty cool too. Uh, you know, kind of the reverse of Babel. You know, proclaiming the gospel to all these different languages. Uh, that's pretty epic. But then you get here, and this is this is very climactic to hear of Stephen. You know, uh, being stoned, and then all of a sudden you get to this point where 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 you see this guy introduced named you know Saul, and it's like, well, they're they're laying the cloaks at him, and he approved of it. So then right away you're thinking, okay, this guy must be some sort of uh, important guy of, of, of importance and authority. And, and he's definitely being displayed that way. And just to think that this is the one who we're introduced to first here in the book of Acts. And later on, we come to find out that he is a prolific author and he himself is undergoing the same beatings as Stephen for the proclamation of the very same gospel. Uh, it is just, that's epic. That's absolutely epic. No, it really is. And the fact that Paul, as he begins most of his letters, almost in defense of his apostleship, because this hung around with people. The fact that he was there for Stephen's persecution, but then, of course, uh, he led up a lot of persecution of Christians, that, that even though he's forgiven in Christ, even his fellow apostles uh, struggle with this. And I think that's a message to us, too, because let's face it, let's be really honest. How often do we ignore our own sinfulness and then struggle a little bit like Jonah when the heinous sinners come to faith? 
Uh, and, and Paul, we are first introduced to him as a great sinner and persecutor of the church. Um, and then, of course, he's very revered by the end. Um, it really shows just the absolute depth of God's ability to to redeem all of us, right? If they could redeem Saul, it can redeem us. And yet, still, it it even our holy apostles, whom we all revere and appropriately so, uh, some of them still continue to have struggles with this. Yeah, I, I think I think in in chapter eight, verse one, it's it's a very interesting word where it says that uh, Paul approved of 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 their killing of him, of Stephen. And that word approve is to be pleased with, uh, to not only approve, but to be pleased with, to consent, agree. It also has in its meaning to applaud. And so uh, you get the, the you get the image that uh, Paul was not like, you know, maybe, you know, flinching at the stoning, but he perhaps maybe even had a smile or a grin, a satisfaction with this. And so to go from that, um, you know, to where he is as the proclaimer of the gospel later on, uh, it's a dramatic shift. And well, what happened? Well, Lord Jesus happened to Paul and 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 to to convert him. And that you'll get to the upcoming chapters here. And you know, up, I'm sure, obviously, in the upcoming episodes. But yeah, absolutely. And 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 the, there's a sense where, um, yeah, I I, I I I don't know even how to say it. it's just it's just it's pretty profound to think that. You have him with a smile and, and a grin on his face. And then, well, okay, here's what's going to go with that, that thinking about how then he uses Paul, which really goes back to think about all the disciples. You know, the, the Lord Jesus Christ could have gone down to the great synagogues to choose the the prim and the proper, the elite of the elite. Uh, but the nature of the Christian faith is always choosing in a way um, those that are what? Um, the least of these. And so you go back to the Old Testament, he chooses not great Assyrian Empire, the Babylonians or the Persians or the Romans, but he chooses what? Uh, Israel as, as, as to be that light uh, to bring forth the promised seed, the Messiah. And then you look at the 12 disciples. Uh, they're a bunch of fishermen <laughs> and a tax collector to boot. I mean, these, these are just a bunch of blue-collar fishermen and a tax collector boot. And then here, uh, the, the great uh, missionary, Paul, he chooses a guy who's grinning and smiling at the joy of, of Stephen's death. He uses him, which gives us great joy. I mean, if the Lord has chosen these fishermen and a tax collector and this, this uh, persecutor of the church, uh, God be praised that uh, it's based on the merit of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus for all of us and not upon ourselves. That word for approval, uh, Paul himself uses it. The first time he uses it is in the book of Acts. Uh, I'm sorry, not the book of Acts, uh, the book of Romans, of course. He's the one writing Romans. Uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then you skip down a little bit. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I, I can imagine Paul uh, struggling with his own previous feelings of smug approval as he persecuted Christians. And as you said, uh, he certainly endured punishment his whole ministry, uh, more than I think any of us would ever want to bear. And so just reading the rest of our section for today, which is only uh, three more verses, uh, and Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. 
but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So you mentioned earlier about how the church is thriving under persecution. Um, anecdotally, that's true for sure, because here we have in the earliest part of the church, Paul's persecution of the Christians in no small way uh, affected the ability to spread out beyond. And, and people who probably were pretty happy living where they were living are now forced to flee, but in fleeing, they now have all these new opportunities to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Yeah, I mean, this is, again, this is the nature of the book of Acts. Every time we see that persecution, uh, the gospel spreads. And so we could obviously say what what Satan means for evil, God uses obviously for good. Um, we even hear Jesus in, in the book of Matthew, in, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, he says, uh, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. And so there's this nature where persecution happens. Um, you know, we flee to the next to then what? Thus confess. And this is, a lot of this is going to be the nature of um, of of the estate of family and for a father to protect his family, his wife and children, uh, to give them safety. And so we never stop confessing, um, but yet we're also wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. And being wise as a serpent means that oftentimes we see that persecution coming and to protect our family, we, we flee to the next town and for safety and protection of the family. But then as you go, what goes with you? The pr pronouncement of the gospel, the assurance of the gospel, and again, back to confessing that gospel. And so thus, uh, this persecution of the church uh, had no way possible. The Stoning of Stephen had no way possible to, to, to stifle and snuff out the gospel. Um, no way possible. The gates of Hades will not overcome the gospel. And so even in the midst of persecution, we, the church, uh, shall be comforted uh, because the gospel goes forth. Great men... Uh, laid him to rest and made great lamentations over him, and uh, Philip has fallen asleep. We all pray, of course, that we could fall asleep um, as much <laughs> in as much peace as uh, this Stephen did. I think I said Philip because that's what we're going to be covering tomorrow. But first, I'd like to thank my guest, the Reverend Dr. Matthew Richard, pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor, thanks so much for being on the show. I really look forward to when you come back again. Yeah, it's great. Good, good stuff. Good topic. And uh, yeah, confess Christ in good times and persecution for the Lord is faithful to us. Amen. Excellent. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And folks, when we come back tomorrow, the story continues, right? In the wake of Stephen's martyrdom and now scattered by persecution, the early Christian believers are beginning to evangelize beyond Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus had said. Now, one of these apostles that we'll talk about tomorrow— Philip, I already had him on the brain earlier, he finds himself in Samaria, a region historically at odds with the Jews, as you might imagine. And against all odds, his preaching and his miracles are resonating faith within the hearts of many. Now, enter Simon the Magician, renowned for his own sorcery and influence. He's among those many converts, but then he does something that, well, reveals a misconstrued understanding of the Holy Spirit. That and more tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.